Welcome to Legacy Church. It's good to have you here. Uh, my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here that gets to teach, and I'm excited to teach this passage today. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John 4 as we're working through our series. By the way, happy Father's Day, as Kevin said. Um, Father's Day, in our culture, I feel like I was telling some guys earlier, feels a little bit like Cinco de Mayo or St. Patrick's Day. It doesn't quite have the weight and gravity to it that Mother's Day has, right? Mother's Day comes around and we give away these expensive chocolate bars to all the moms. I mean like the big dollar chocolate bars. But when it's Father's Day, we just high-five each other. <laughs> it's a little bit of a rip-off. So next year for Father's Day, we're going to give away buck knives with your name engraved on it and moon pies to go along with it, right? So we'll have to start saving money now. <laughs> um, but in all seriousness, happy Father's Day. It is a weighty day. You know, and I'd like to pray for something regarding our fathers. Um, every week we talk about Central City, which is 19.67 square miles around a location we'll be moving to very soon. And some of you have asked me um, how the building is going and where that is uh, at, I guess. And, and that's moving along, and we will give more details on that soon. Um, but I want to remind you that the win for us as a church is not a new building or a new space. It's the neighborhood that it's in. That's why we keep talking about the neighborhood every week instead of the building. More details about the building will come out as time goes on. But the neighborhood is who we're trying to introduce you to, who the people are that live in that 19.67 square miles that we're kind of aiming our hearts at, right? Um, and this morning as I was praying for what we call Central City, I was thinking about fathers. One of the things that you will always find when you read an article on poverty or see a case study done on poverty is the fact that it is always linked to a deep fatherlessness, right? It's always implicit. It's always an attribute of deep poverty. Um, I remember whenever we were in our second church plant and I was in Tampa Bay, I was a running coach at a high school, a big 5A, super 5A high school. And I coached both cross country and track, which means I coached year round. And we took a poll my last three years there and asked how many of our athletes had a father in the house, and only one out of four did. Three out of four had no father in the house. Now, here is what makes that statistic truly mind-numbing. We were in the suburbs. We were surrounded by communities full of brand-new track homes. Everyone's driving a brand-new car. Every, it, was, it was not affluent, but it was definitely middle-class to upper-middle-class. So what we noticed was there might not be a financial poverty, but there was an emotional poverty there. We had an inner city demographic when it came to fatherlessness. And that's why over maybe six years of coaching there, I would have athletes come up and say to me, Coach, you're the only thing I've ever had that's looked like a father before. Right? Now, what's powerful about a statement like that to, to just an average guy is we understand as Christians as fathers, if you're a father in here and you love Jesus, you understand that how you parent a child as a father, it builds a picture for your child on how God looks to a certain extent. To a certain extent, it does. There's weight to it. Um, you might grow up thinking that God is into performance because maybe your father only gave you gold stars whenever you did well at something. You made first team, um, first chair top honors. That's when you got the most accolades. Um, that's when you got the most attention from your father. So what do you do? You do the same thing for God, right? Well, in an impoverished demographic, what does it tell you when a father is not even home? You start building an identity underneath a God of a God that maybe doesn't even exist. 
Maybe it's a God that will abandon you, that isn't really even interested in you. You know, one of the things I notice, I'm talking too long on this, I know. One of the things I would notice is whenever I would get close to an athlete that did not have a father in the home, as soon as they would start to misbehave, they did one of two things. They would either draw really close to me to try to win my affection, afraid that their misbehavior would put a wedge, or they would push away and say, well, he's just going to leave anyway. It was interesting to see how they viewed authority. So one of my main roles there was to just not teach them how to run, but teach them how to see God more clearly. It's a heavy weight we have as dads, isn't it? It's a heavy weight. So what I would love to do is pray that God shows us as fathers how to display before our kids who God is in a powerful way. But I would also love to pray for a couple of the middle schools and the high schools around here and ask that in the formative years that the church would have a fathering role with young people that grow up without dads. Is that fair? Is that a fair prayer request? In this way, as we continue to pray for people in Central City, our hearts begin to be more attached to a place that we might not even live in. Okay, That's why we do this. So let me pray, and then we'll jump into the Word. I'm sorry. Father, we thank you for being so good to us. I grew up with a dad, and the good parts of my dad, and the, and the, and the fractured parts of my dad, altered how I saw you, for good and for worse. It's a heavy calling we have in being fathers. So, Lord, as we hear today, as children of, a, of an ultimate father, we ask for your grace and we ask for your Holy Spirit to teach us how to teach our kids. That Father's Day would not be about us getting a new grill. It would not be about us um, not having to wash dishes that night or whatever it is that happens in our various Father Days. But, but, but Lord, it would be a day where we celebrate you as much as we celebrate ourselves. You are a very good father to us. And we pray for the high schools in the area, the Austin Easts, and even the West High School, the one that we're sitting in right now, and Northwest Middle School, and the different middle schools that surround us right now. Lord, that the young men and the young women that grow up without a functional father, Lord, that you would give us opportunity, a moment, a season, years, to plow, to deposit, to invest in a generation that they would grow up and have a decent working picture of who you are. Lord, that we would be involved even, even to that degree as we extend the gospel to a broken place. We love you and we thank you. And we just pray for this word today that you would show us, teach us, encourage us, and challenge us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, John 4. That's going to be where we're at. We've been going through a series in the book of John called Hero, and we're going to pick up right where we left off last week, and I'll explain why. Because it's obvious Orlando has happened between last week and this week. And what Orlando does is it reminds us of how fragile human life is. Saturday, people get up and they get ready to go to a club and they don't understand and they don't even know that somewhere else in Orlando, someone is loading high-capacity magazines with ammo and just waiting for darkness to fall. They don't know that. When tragedies like this hit every town USA, it's interesting what it does to our culture. One thing is it, does, it reminds us of the very thin veil between life and death, how quick and abruptly it ambushes us sometimes. It reminds us of that. Another thing that tragedy will do is it will carry us all to social media. It will carry us all to news outlets. 
where we study what other people are saying, kind of looking for people to agree with us, which political party is saying what I'm thinking, what celebrities are thinking what I'm thinking, and we look for some commonality. We maybe even vent a little bit. We'll pass some bills so we don't feel very useless, trying to prevent it from ever happening again. You'll start to hear sound bites pop up here and there by various people trying to galvanize others to their political view. But also when tragedies like this happen, and this is something that's not talked about very often, the gospel is pronounced. The good news, hear me now, when tragedies like this happen, the good news of what God has done for mankind through the person of Jesus Christ held high. Different people, groups, churches. Because when tragedies like this happen, hope can be clearly seen. And the gospel is the best hope that we have. I'll explain. Did you notice, for some of you who are old enough, after 9-11 hit, another tragedy, how there was a spike in church attendance and a spike in number of baptisms. The ranks of churches were full. I remember. I mean, I was on staff at a church whenever that happened, and it was astonishing how many people were there the very next Sunday, how somber, how there was a deep sobriety about the church. People were responsive to how close they are to their own death, and they were asking questions that they normally don't ask. Right? Even your neighbor out watering the lawn, who you could never get a conversation off about, now he's open to talking about things like the afterlife, conscience, things like that. Personal evangelism became easier. It just seemed like culturally in America, it was more acceptable and less awkward to talk about things like God, Jesus. But after the sound bites fade, and after a new story replaces the last story, it starts to feel awkward again, doesn't it? Evangelism. The, the, the numbers of people sitting in the seat start to decline again. Baptism numbers go back to normal, and when it comes to feeling adequate or inadequate in telling other people about Jesus, we start to feel more inadequate than we do adequate. You see, gospel extension to a city or gospel advancement in a city is actually where this passage carries us today. Last week, I was excited to talk about the passage um, about Jesus meeting the woman by the well. And I told you I couldn't be more excited about not teaching evangelism in that passage because that's not where it leads us. We are not Jesus in that passage telling another about God. We are the woman in that passage wearing all the shame and receiving grace even though we don't deserve it. Right? But this passage actually flips. And it does teach beautiful lessons about how a city is changed to God's glory, because God's work in this nameless woman is producing an evangelist. God's movement in this heart by the power of the Holy Spirit is producing one who will extend the gospel to a broken city and tell another's story. You see, it might not feel appropriate to stay in John today, especially when the national focus is on Orlando. And just to give you a peek behind the curtain of how pastors think, just industry talk for a moment, this is typically a week where a pastor might call an audible and say, we're going to break whatever series we're doing, and we're not going to talk about what we normally talk about because we have to address this national thing. So we're going to preach about hate. 
or we're going to preach about forgiveness, or we're going to preach about love, we're going to preach about um, radical ideologies. We're going, to, we're going to address that topic, right? And I'm not saying that's always wrong to do. We did that when Sandy Hook came around. But what I will say is I think providentially this passage helps us more than breaking from it. The best way I can point to Jesus and remind you of how beautiful he is is just to stick with what God has shown us and what Jesus is doing for us. And he does something very beautiful for us in this passage. It gives me a chance to evangelize you. It gives me a chance to extend a story to you. Because what Jesus does in the passage we're reading today, just as I continually introduce it, is he spreads his beauty to broken mankind through broken people. He's bringing the gospel to bear on broken people who need Jesus greatly. And he's doing it through failed people, full of shame and histories and pasts, problems, issues. Today, gospel advancement in Knoxville is the topic. And I think it's fitting because I think Jesus Christ, our hero, is the only thing that stops gun violence. Therefore, I'm not going to focus on kicking around on gun laws and things like that. Jesus is really the only way to deal with that, whether it is gun violence in a terrorist type of a situation or it's gun violence in gang activity. See, we've already almost forgotten the two kids that were shot in just in recent months by gangs. That's already moved out of our news cycle. The only thing that will stop that is Jesus Christ. Not new legislation. Now, when it comes to evangelism, I know as soon as I said the word, some of you had a little bit of a death inside, a little bit of a shuddering, because the word evangelism does that to people. It just kind of has that effect on us, you know? Um, another, another peek behind a pastoral curtain, just so you can see how pastors are sometimes. We will actually use a different word for evangelism to make you feel less awkward about it like storyteller. I've, just, I've already used that once, haven't I? I do this a lot. M missionary, missional, herald, witness, gospel extender. See, that's a nice complicated one, right? It's evangelism. <laughs> now, the reason you feel uncomfortable and shudder inside a little bit when it comes to evangelism isn't because you are against it. It's because you feel inadequate. It's because you feel not up to doing it, not fit for it. I mean, it's the least populated class we have in class schedules, isn't it? If you were to go to a, a mega church or maybe a more um, traditional church and you could pick from 10 different classes, I guarantee the evangelism class has like hardly anyone sitting in there. There's like a full box of donuts and a full pot of coffee and like three weird people in there, right? But if you go to the spiritual warfare class, it's full, standing room only. Sex and marriage, full, standing room only. Evangelism, just the weird people and some crickets. That's how it is. I'd been a Christian for one week, and I took my first class. And it was a class called Evangelism Explosion. Some of you have heard of this, right? And now I'm not going to comment on whether it's good or bad. I'm just going to say it was common back then to be in this class. The very first passages I ever memorized as a Christian were because of Evangelism Explosion. I did not know that they were going to make me go to the mall afterward and walk up to just... Total strangers, guys sitting on the mall bench waiting for their wives to come out of some girl's store, right? Before, before cell phones, when they saw me coming a mile away with my awkward presentation and my cheesy one-liner, trying to develop some sort of a rapport so I could hook them with heaven, get them with the gospel. 
I think we feel inadequate in connecting to other people because they feel so different from us, right? How do I tell that person about Jesus? He's gay. She has a tattoo on her face. You know, I don't, know, I don't even know how to connect with somebody like that. And if we do feel comfortable with connecting, do we always feel adequate with how much scripture we know? Clarity and passages, we always feel a little awkward there, inadequate there. And if we're okay in those two categories, then it's easy to feel inadequate in how we communicate, being clear, being compelling. It's a struggle for all of us. It's a struggle for me. This nameless woman by the well, she becomes an evangelist, not because she's speaking to a city in the middle of its tragedy, but because she's speaking to a city in the middle of the city's normal. There was no gunfire the night before, no mass shooting in this little place, this little dot on the map. No comet had come, no, no weather had wiped out half of the city. It was just the normal city scooting along, shuffling around, doing what it does every other Taco Tuesday with nothing on their mind that things could go wrong. It's like us. 99% of the time, just a normal person with a past, broken with a history, feeling awkward and inadequate, standing up in the middle of Market Square and bellowing out what God is doing. Think about that for a moment. Have you seen people in Market Square do that? That's what she was doing. Now, when we read this passage, this is the longest intro for a passage I've ever done. But as we jump into this passage, it's important for you to read it with a split screen in mind. All right. John does something unique in his writing here, and he goes to a split screen, which means that simultaneously you have action happening in two different areas. One is in their version of a market square, and the other is outside the city limits right by a well. Okay. So think like if you ever saw 24. Right, 24, right before the commercial break, the timestamp pops up and then the panels come up, right? Boom, boom, boom. Upper right-hand panel, you have Jack Bauer. He's cutting the blue wire instead of the red wire, right? The evil mastermind is making a virus or something. And then over on the bottom panel, you have the president rubbing his head, doesn't know if he's going to send the F-16s in or not. It's all happening at the same time. That's what's happening here, okay? So let's look at panel one. This is going to be John. We're going to look in chapter 4 and verse 27. If you have your Bible, just read along. If not, it'll be on the screen. You could read along. Just then, his disciples came back, and they marveled that he, Jesus, was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, come. See a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Okay, let's pause because what Jesus' disciples were doing right here is they interrupted a conversation between Jesus and someone Jesus shouldn't have been talking to. And we went over this last week. You can go back and listen to it if you weren't here. Jesus had several strikes against him because as a Jewish man, you don't talk to a Samaritan or a Samaritan woman or a Samaritan woman without her husband there, or a Samaritan woman without her husband who had a past, you just didn't do these things. So you could almost envision the disciples coming in and going, hey, well, so anyway, G and then they just catch view. He's talking to her. And just kind of the, the odd look on their face, like, I don't understand what's going on, but I'm awkward. She could get the vibe anyway from the passage that she picks up on the discomfort 
and she just leaves. But we find out that she doesn't leave because she's uncomfortable. She's leaving because she is joyful. John leaves a detail in that first little part. She left something there, didn't she? She left that water jar. She had carried that dopey thing all the way out of the city, all the way to the well to fill it up with who knows how many gallons of water, 10, 20 pounds of water, and carry it right back to the city, and she leaves it there. Now, some scholars will say that there is great symbolism in this moment, right? Because uh, the water stood for old religious living, and now she has new eternal water springing up and welling up inside of her. That's fine if you want to do that. I I don't see any big problem in that. I will say, I think she's just excited, though, because when I get excited, I forget things, too. God had just flipped her script quite a bit. She came in with a past. She came in with idols. She came in with shame, and she was able to drop them all right there. I think she's just joyful. She leaves it. She goes and speaks to a city. But just imagine the discomfort in this. Just think about it, because you can relate to it. Here it is. This is a woman that is used to lurking in the shadows, and now she's standing on a soapbox. The only reason she's even at the well in the middle of the day is so that no one would see her. She wouldn't have to endure her shame before all. Look what she's doing. Now, do you think that was easy for her? Now, no doubt the Holy Spirit was working in her. No doubt she had an empowering presence that was beyond the physical But I guarantee you, I guarantee you, there was some flesh saying, what are you doing? Full breaks, emergency break. You're talking out loud. Everyone's looking at you. They're judging you right now. They know your past. They know who you really are. I can't believe you're saying the things that you're saying. Stop it immediately. Because remember, there was great distance between this woman and the city culturally. Great distance and she closes the gap. Which in this already, without even taking a serious rabbit trail, we see the act of Jesus in her. Jesus closed an even more serious culture gap by coming to us. Because he is far more different from us than she was from the city. But he comes, lives among us, putting on our skin, our language, speaking to us in a way as a generosity to us. So we see a Christ-like action in this woman, no doubt. But have you ever tried to talk to like a family member or an old friend that you grew up with back from the old day? Have you ever tried to talk to them about Jesus just to see that look on their face that, come on, I know who you are. You could drink me under the table. You're talking to me about Jesus. You've got so many skeletons in your closet, we have to add on to your closet. It's a walk-in closet now with like two sets of doors and a bench to sit on, you know, with all, it's a huge closet because I know your past. What is crazy to me about this passage is not that she got up and preached, it's that they listened. That is mind-blowing. As a student of the Bible for almost 20 years now, I've read the New Testament many times and let, out of all of the gospel preaching in the New Testament, this is the one I want the front seat to. Not at the well, in the city. When she's in Market Square, I want to see the look on her face as she's about to say something for the first time. I want to see the look on their face right before the Holy Spirit convicts them. I want to see something like that happen. What a cool moment. All right, split screen. Back to the well, okay? Simultaneously, 
In verse 31 of 4, we see this. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Okay, don't hear what he's not saying here. People get tripped up here. Jesus was hungry. It's not like he was tucking away a power bar. You know, he was hungry. He was tired. That's why he stopped at the well. And he was thirsty. And he sent his disciples in to get food. So let's just say he was hungry. So what's going on? He's teaching here. He's saying, something is consuming me. He's virtually saying, I have a hunger. And I'm physically hungry, guys. But I have something that imposes more of a hunger on me. I have a deeper hunger to do God's will than I even do to eat. The hunger of the flesh is there, but my hunger to do God's will is even more compelling in me than my hunger to eat. That's just simply what he's saying. And we see this in other parts of the Bible. In Job 23, don't turn there, stay where you're at. Job says, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. Jesus' food was to accomplish God's will. To Jesus, this is how good the gospel is. It's even weightier than food itself. Jesus' food was to accomplish God's will. Now, what was God's will for him? God's will for him was to extend life to the dead. God's will for Jesus was to come and be a substitute for you and for me, packing squarely on his own shoulders all the sin that we commit, and there was plenty of room because he committed none. His role was to stand in the gap and absorb a righteous judgment and punishment against him that was aimed at you and me. Even though we deserved it, he took it. Every last drop. That was God's will for him. To come to a broken garden and be a replacement for broken people. That we could have a relationship with God, our King and Father and our hero forever. And Jesus pulled it off. He did this. That was God's will and he pulled it off. Let's look at verse 35. i got to move on. Do not say, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Okay, sometimes when Jesus talks like this, it sounds like a riddle, doesn't it? Like if we were just a little bit smarter, we could figure out what he's saying. It's not that difficult, and I think his original hearers understood what was being said right now. Jesus is simply saying this. Hey, guys, look around. You see the fields? They're not quite ready for harvest, but in about four months they will be, right? Yes, Jesus. Okay, well, I disagree. They're ready now. They're ready now. In fact, the harvest is so plentiful that the harvester is catching up with the one who is sowing the seeds and they can celebrate together. They're high-fiving each other. Everyone is excited about what is happening. You see, Jesus is not taking this from Amos. He's not quoting Amos, but he is borrowing heavily from Amos the prophet, who was also a farmer, by the way. 
if you look at it. In Amos 9.13, the prophet of God said this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. What Amos is saying here is there is going to be a time later when a new kingdom comes, there will be an era, a time, where sowing and reaping happens at the same time. There's no more sowing a seed and having to wait for harvest to come. It could happen immediately. Amos was saying that. Jesus is saying that. He's telling his disciples, and he's telling us. And then he says something even cooler, I think. Jesus says, I sent you guys to harvest where you never toiled and you've never worked before. Others did that hard work that you're entering into right now. He's saying whenever you guys work, you're just following along uh, behind somebody who came along before you. Now, why is he telling them this? This seems like a footnote. It doesn't seem like a teaching that would need to be in bold print. Why is Jesus telling them something like this? Because when it comes to evangelism, now never looks like the time, and here never looks like the place. The fields never look white for harvest. If you are an evangelist or have tried to evangelize or tell people about Jesus, am I right? Doesn't it come up quickly? This is not a good time. This is a bad place. I think that's why he's saying that. These people are too different. There needs to be a lot of work that happens with this person before they'll ever love Jesus. And I am inadequate to do that kind of preaching or teaching or evangelism. I understand this. I know a lot of people as well that are far from Jesus, and it is easy for me to look at them and go, you're so far. They are so far from loving God. Not only do they have sin in their life, they practice it, love it, and make an art out of it. They are nowhere near receiving things that I would like to say. So I just won't, because I'm inadequate for the task. I think that's why he's saying it. Okay, now split screen back. Now we're going back, okay? Verse 39 in the same chapter. Many Samaritans, back in the city, from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Now that's not the only thing she said, obviously. There was more around that. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. That's my favorite sentence in this whole narrative, that we know indeed, in all truth, we are confident that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Is this not the heart cry of every church? Should it? Should it not be the heart cry of every church to hear that phrase come out of our neighbors? This Jesus is indeed, to me, the hero and the savior of the world. That's why we planted this church. That's why we're going to plant more church. That's why we meet in living rooms. That's why we have staff meetings. It's why we're going to fix up an old building to meet in, which is a totally different sermon. It's why we do the things we do, is to hear this phrase. To hear it from your neighbors, the one behind the bar, the one that is addicted, 
to hear the one that is living in, in, in an upper-class neighborhood where everything seems to be working, to hear it from their mouth as, as well as anyone's, this Jesus that you always talk about, I believe, is my hero and is the Savior of the world. Like this once fractured woman, we carry a message of another story to a very fractured city. A normal city that might not even feel like it's swirling in tragedy, but tragically is in big trouble. I mean, imagine that something happened in Knoxville this week. Something that wiped out 100 people, not 49, but 100. How quick do you think Orlando starts to kind of move back into the shadows of, you know, tragedy in Knoxville on the front of every app and on the front of every newscast. It would be there, wouldn't it? And, and you know what would happen here on Sunday? The place would be full. We'd have to take down the dorky curtains. We'd have people up there too. People would be crying, a deep sobriety. People would become radically saved, I'm sure. We'd be baptizing them soon. There would be a lot of activity. Is, is Knoxville in less tragedy if that doesn't happen? Is Knoxville in less trouble as whole when something like that doesn't happen? I think Knoxville's in tragic need of the gospel now in our normal. But inadequacy creeps up on us, doesn't it? And it leads us to simply believe that we cannot do the work. The fields don't look white for harvest. Now is not the time. Here is not the place. Too many people already devoted to their lifestyle. The flesh is all about right in front of their eyes. They're, they're, they're worshiping it. They're, they're whatever. Whatever excuse you want to put out there, there's no way that person, that group, will ever have anything to do with Jesus. How on earth are we supposed to do this kind of work? It's easy for us to ask that question. So I'm going to give you the answer. And I'm not going to give you any tips either. It's not a clinic on evangelism. It's not. Notice this woman didn't have any tips. She was not pregnant with class material when she went into the middle of Market Square. There's got to be something deeper than this. I think what it is is that we have to understand and have the confidence, not that we will do a good job, but that God is doing a good job before us. He precedes us. That whenever we enter into the work of God, evangelically in somebody else, God's already been working. As he says, we're entering into work. We did not sow. We're picking up the baton, maybe, from work that has already gone before us. Now, in this passage, uh, it's, it's probably easy to say he was talking about John the Baptist or maybe the prophets of old. You know, so you guys, you're going to go around in the cities and you're going to talk about me and people are going to get radically saved. But, you know, work has already been done. But that's the work of God through people, once again, to capture the hearts of broken people, doing it through broken people. So today, what that tells you and me is that when we step into somebody else's grill and walk in their shoes and we do some life with someone that's very far from Jesus, we're not original. We're not sowing seeds as much as we're picking up and, and, and nurturing and, and tilling what has already been sowed. We have to trust in evangelism that God is at work or else we're just going to feel alone. And it's all up to us. You see, God's labor is always productive. It's decisive, especially in his labor and his work on the cross. It produced something. Think about it. Before you trusted your life to Jesus, I don't know what that looked like for you. Maybe you were just a little kid and someone just prayed with you, even if it was. 
even if you were seven, and you gave your life to Jesus and he became king, God was already working in your life. He was already plowing. He was already sowing. I remember it happening to me as a young man. I remember where I sat. I remember the night of the week. I remember the way the room felt. I remember the lighting. I remember the words coming out of the man's mouth. Some of the sentences I could still say verbatim. But even though that moment was pinnacle, and even though that was the night that I said, that's it, I'm done with my old life, I'm dropping all of my idols here, I'm following God. Even though that man and his words were so helpful to me, all he did was enter into the work of other people. Someone else had already plowed and plowed and plowed some more. This is important. Because whenever we look at the main players, like in a tragedy like Orlando, a lot of us would feel very intimidated, wouldn't we? Talking to people who are not heterosexual about Jesus, would that not intimidate some of you? Talking to people that are radicalized over a different ideology and religion, would that not be intimidating to you? But what if it is true and God is already working long before you step into it? Because Jesus shows us that in the most unlikely of circumstances, that now is the time and now is the place. And the fields are literally white for harvest. Because he's already been working in our midst. And we're just tripping into the situation. Before we ever find somebody with the gospel, God has already been working and maneuvering and softening. You see, when we struggle with the gospel extension to a city, it's not because we think, is it not? Let me ask it as a question. When we struggle in evangelism, is it not because we feel like we're alone? We feel like we're unique, like we're the original person to bring them the gospel. Or to ask a provoking question, as if they've never heard one before. As if they've never been up at night, wondering some of the things. As if they've never seen something in nature, or had a moment, or read a book, or saw a movie, or had a friend. We feel like we are the first ones to do it, and so we feel alone. We feel insufficient. We feel that God is not sufficient. And so in our silence, we say a whole lot, which is, God, you are not strong enough to do this. And I'm definitely not strong enough, so I'm just going to be silent. Do you see what the real crime in this is? The biggest fail in our lack of evangelism isn't our silence. It's the unbelief that's hiding squarely behind it. The real fail is not, all right, all right, I guess I'll share my testimony more. That's not the fail. You being silent about your testimony. The real fail is the sin behind the sin. The real fail is that you don't believe God is strong enough to do something. So you feel totally alone. When we repent, this is where we repent. For feeling like God is inadequate. You know, Knoxville is full of people that God is working on right now, and he's speaking to them. He's speaking to them in dreams. He's speaking to them through other people, imperfect people. He's speaking to them through books, through stuff, moments. And when you approach that person, your adequacy is not the question. When you approach that person, your ability, not the issue. God is already working on that person. In this text today, 
you get to see Jesus building a certain kind of disciple, a certain kind of missionary in this woman. She's not full of tips. She's not full of material that we can write down like an acrostic or Roman numerals that will help us be a little bit of a cleaner presentation to the community. He's not, not doing that. That's not happening in this text. She is simply convinced that Jesus is the Savior of mankind. She's convinced that if God is doing a massive heroic work in her, he's doing it elsewhere. And Jesus is leading his disciples to think the same way. I think some of us in here, we feel too dirty to talk to others because our past is following us and people know about it. God says, I'm totally adequate. Your adequacy is not the issue. Some, I think, feel too distant from the culture around us to speak to it. God would say, I've already been speaking for a long time. I think some of us in here feel like now is not the time and now is not the place here is not where we ought to be doing this, but God says the harvester is catching up and passing the sower. He's collapsing it all into one. Now is the time. Here is the place. Go ahead and stand with me. I'm going to finish this out. You see, as we worship God, I want to remind you of some words in here that really deserve their own sermon, but I'm just going to use them to introduce this moment of worship. He says to his disciples, I have food you don't know about. Now, not only did Jesus have food that they did not know about, he was food. Hear me out. He did not just have life-giving food. He was life-giving food. He did not just provide manna for the hungry masses. He was the bread of life for the broken masses. So whenever you take communion today, it's a picture of what God did for you, breaking our hero, as he bled out, as his body took the blows from us. We take that in remembrance. We take it looking to the future. But as you pray, and now we do it, and I know Kevin will come up in a little bit and lead you, feel free to do it with your family. You can do it alone if you want. You can do it with your community group, however you feel like you need to do this. But I would just challenge you today, and I don't typically try to intrude in your time back there. I really don't. But I would challenge you to repent today. I've had to do a lot of repenting this week for this, too, by the way. Repent today for not believing that God is strong enough and active enough and the unlikely people around you, because that's where the real failure is for us. We have to repent. Then we get to thank him. Thank God for working in us, for sowing in us, for reaping in us. To be thankful that we are part of the white harvest, many of us, that has been culled together by our hero. So we repent, we thank, and then we pray. This is the key one. I would love for you to pray, even by name, for the people around you that you feel like are far from God, the ones that you feel like they're too far from God. Culturally, you don't even understand them. And you've already semi-written them off. And if you haven't written them off, you've written off that you could have anything to do with talking to that person about Christ or showing them a picture of Christ. Maybe somebody else will do it. That guy's loaded with tattoos, you know? And I can't, I got like henna once in Gatlinburg. I'm like so far from that person. I don't even know what makes them tick. Maybe somebody else will come along. That's how we, that's how we cop out, isn't it? Your affinity for that person isn't what leads them to Jesus, right? Jesus' powerful grace is what leads them to God. So pray for that person by name. And then I'd ask you to do it again tomorrow.
and then the next day, and then the next day, and then the next day, and then the day after that, and the day after that. That they would be ready to hear, you would be ready to speak, and that God would move by the power of his Holy Spirit. And friends, I'm telling you, this is how the gospel advances in a city. It's not very glamorous, is it? I mean, it's just simple fluency and understanding that God is already at work. It's not the us and our ability show. It's the fact that he is the king of all creation and he is the heroic hero that is already working. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for being so sweet to us in this text. You teach us a lot. I learn a lot about how to approach those who are far from you. I've learned a lot in this text, and I need my heart encouraged. I need courage to be put in my heart to truly believe that you are strong and that you love this city way more than I do. Lord, I need to be convinced still than when I'm at a restaurant. I need to be convinced still when I'm just hanging out. I need to be convinced still that when I'm around the city that you are working on that person's life. And if I fail, when I fail, if I'm totally silent, your love for me does not decrease. Because you are an ultimate father that does not grade us and dispense love upon our performance and behavior. We could totally fail at evangelism for the rest of our lives and not take one step back from your love and your care and your excitement over us. But Father, it's because of that, it's because of your grace towards us that we desire to be a people full of voice, a people full of another person's story. Lord, help us. Help us. Lord, we love you and we pray for Knoxville. Pray for this city. We pray for the brokenness in it, the fatherlessness in it. We pray for tragedies that have gone by and tragedies that will come, that we, Lord, would not throw our arms up in despair, but we would say this is a time of hope. This is a time to show what life looks like, not vent, not scramble, but to stand fast and to show that with all the disorder and all of the murder and all of the questions, Jesus hates it more than we do, and that's why he came to die, to wash away all sin, to wash away all death. Lord, that we would be excited about that message. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.